Our gospel reading this morning is out of the, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I'll be reading the first 18 verses. Let us hear the gospel. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying in the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. <laughs> Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, he is risen. Risen is he. That's good. All right. You're awake. Such a pleasure to be with you all to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Who knew an empty cave could be this exciting, right? This first Easter morning certainly created some mystery, didn't it? I've been on a kick reading murder mysteries recently, because that's easier than reading theology. And um, somehow reading about murder is also less stressful than reading the news most days. So I, I buy cheap damaged copies of Dorothy Sayers' novels, and I read them in the shower. <laughs> Judge me if you want. It's, it's very relaxing. Anyway, um, the one I'm working on right now is called Have His Carcass, and it starts off with the discovery of a body on a beach, uh, but it's at low tide, and by the time the heroine of the story has informed the authorities and had somebody come back, the body's been washed out to sea. And so the wheels of justice all kind of hang in the balance, you see, because the authorities do not, in fact, have his carcass. Uh, it's very inconvenient for police not to have a body. But the Gospels present a very different kind of case in that no one has the body. 
Nobody can begin to imagine who would take it or why. In the earliest accounts of that morning, the one thing that seems to be missing is Jesus himself. What we celebrate this morning started off not with some sort of big reveal. It starts with an empty tomb abandoned by the soldiers assigned to guard it and an awful lot of confusion. There are more questions than answers on that first Easter Sunday. And it reads a little like a mystery novel. And the one thing everyone has in common is that no one knows nothing. This is a mystery with a lot of big questions hanging out there, and ignorance is sort of the common thread. Nobody knows anything. It's like when I ask the kids who made this mess. Nobody knows anything. (laughs) We saw on Palm Sunday how the crowd had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, right? But they had no idea what was going to happen. That was partly why they were all so happy, right? Uh, They're all smiling because they don't know anything. Then on Thursday, the ignorance theme kind of continued into the Passover feast we saw. Jesus says, you know, one of you will betray me, Jesus says, right? And then when John asks him, he straight up tells John that the one who will do the deed is the guy I'm about to hand this morsel of bread to, okay? And he hands it to Judas in plain sight of everyone, and yet John himself records No one at the table knew what was happening or why he sent Judas away. Like they literally assumed that Jesus sent him out for more groceries and they're already halfway done dinner. So they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer here. They're not real quick on the uptake, you see. And and now, on Easter morning, the ignorance theme continues. Peter and John, they see an empty tomb, but verse 9 says they did not understand. Mary looks right at Jesus, but verse 14 says she did not know that it was him. And you start to realize that if this is a mystery story, uh, it's going to be a long one because what we're missing is a detective, uh, someone who knows what's going on and can ask sensible questions. There's no Columbo on the scene here. (laughs) The whole thing is set up like a murder mystery where the body is missing, and so is the detective. And as it turns out, the corpse never does turn up, or rather, it turns up rather unexpectedly breathing. So it's still a mystery, but it's just not a murder mystery. Uh, The first report comes from the women. John focuses the story in on Mary Magdalene. And she and some of the other uh, women, according to the other accounts, went early on that Sunday, and they went there to anoint Jesus' body. And they discover that the tomb, which is a small cave, is open, which it really shouldn't be at this point in time. Two days is long enough that this would be an unpleasant scene. Uh, They didn't use super advanced, expensive embalming techniques. Uh, This would smell. There would be flies. It's a bad idea to leave this open. And yet, they find the place empty. There are no guards. There are no flies. And therefore, one can only assume there's no body. So Mary goes directly to Peter and John to say that someone must have moved the body. Well, Peter and John, like amateur sleuths, run to the tomb, a la Sherlock and Watson, right? And I I highly doubt that they were expecting to find Jesus alive at this point, but they just have to inspect the situation. It's human nature. They're curious, right? And they're going to do what men do. They're going to go and clear this thing up, right? So they run. John runs a little faster. And they actually enter the tomb to see what's up. And sure enough, the body is missing. So they do the only thing they can do. They go home and tell the guys. But Mary Magdalene stays behind. And the first recorded interaction of our resurrected Lord with anybody, that interaction is saved for her. 
Now, overall, we know very little about Mary Magdalene except to say that Mark and Luke record that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, so she had seven good reasons to love Jesus and be thankful for him, even if he was dead and gone forever. Three out of the four Gospels confirm that she was one of the people who was there when Jesus was crucified. So she saw him die. She's not here under any illusion that maybe he survived or was faking something. We've all seen movies where a character looks like they die, but you can usually tell when that's a fake out and the person's going to be back, right? Uh, If you don't actually see the moment when the character dies, anything is fair game. And the classic is falling off of a cliff, right? Because you don't see him land. And if it's a good guy, it's pretty much a guarantee he'll be fine uh, in those kinds of stories. But Mary saw Jesus expire. She heard him cry out. She would have witnessed the earthquake as the entire creation buckled under the strain. She saw the soldier pierce his side. She knows that he is dead. So Mary didn't come here expecting to find a mystery. She's here to pay her respects, to say a a formal farewell away from all the soldiers and the mocking crowds. She's basically going to provide a decent funeral that Jesus didn't get. So this mystery has ruined her mourning, as far as she can see. And I note that Peter and John didn't do a whole heck of a lot to help. They kind of check the tomb, scratch their heads, and go home, and just kind of left her there to process her emotions, as we might say. But Mary still can't accept this, and as people often do, she decides she needs to see for herself. She needs to see and know that the tomb is actually empty. She does exactly what my wife does when I tell her I can't find something in the fridge. After all, we men are notoriously good at missing the obvious. That's why most of us don't know our wives' eye color. Um, We're oblivious. We just are. So Mary's going to go look for herself. Uh, She doesn't go into the tomb. That would be maybe a little too creepy. But she stoops to have a look inside and see if the guys missed anything. And lo and behold, she does see something, doesn't she? It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. I think it's a fair question to ask whether Mary was aware that these guys were angels at the time. I'm wondering if this is something that occurred to her later on. But but we see here that she still views this as the mystery of the missing corpse. Uh, For Mary, what's wrong with this scene is that the tomb is empty. She's almost as upset as the Jewish leaders are going to be come later in the day. So the appearance of two angels chilling where Jesus should be somehow brings no comfort. And we can understand that to some extent. I think if you're here to see Jesus, it's upsetting to think that someone may have moved him into a cheaper tomb or buried him in a ditch or something, right? It adds insult to injury. It's bad enough that they killed him. Can't they just let him rest? And it's not immediately hopeful to see two guys wearing white and sitting where the corpse should be. That's honestly just kind of weird, really. Who are these guys? What are they doing here? But again, Mary is no Columbo. She doesn't think to ask these angels any follow-up questions, right? She simply turns around as if to leave and bumps into somebody. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Once again, Mary, like all of the disciples, is still asking the same question. Where is the body? So preoccupied is she with this question, she doesn't see who she's talking to. She assumes he's the groundkeeper or, or the gardener, and by the way, I don't think she's wrong about that. I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus would appear as a gardener on the day that he reversed the curse of Eden. I think it's very intentional. But Mary's question remains the same. Where is the body? I'm not mad. I just want to know. I'll take care of it. Just tell me where to get him. And if you can imagine this poor hysterical girl offering to carry off a grown man's body by herself, it's pathetic and yet at the same time very moving. She speaks as someone who loves Jesus too much to be rational in the moment. But Mary, like all the others, is investigating the wrong mystery, and that's why Jesus repeats the same exact question. The angel just asked, woman, why are you weeping? But then he lays his cards on the table, and he does it just by saying her name. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. But Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Many others have observed how gracious Jesus is to show himself first to Mary. He doesn't appear before kings. He doesn't appear before the twelve. He doesn't even appear before his enemies to gloat. He chooses to reveal himself first to a relatively unknown woman, somebody whose testimony in those days was considered nearly worthless. And not only that, she has a history of demon possession. No PR department would advise this approach. But Jesus has his own ways. So he apparently lets Peter and John leave. He would have seen them leaving, and he waits talk to Mary instead. And now it becomes clear that the mystery of the missing body is irrelevant. The question of where is Jesus can be answered unequivocally. He's right here. But mystery remains, doesn't it? Everything about this scene still feels like a conspiracy. I was looking at this passage this week and thinking, you know, what kind of questions does the resurrection create? If the question of where the body has become irrelevant, right, what questions remain? If the mystery of the missing body is solved, what else is still a mystery? You could come up with a lot of mysteries. I, I started by asking Jacob if he had any questions about the resurrection, you know, picking his brain. And he asked a very intelligent question about where exactly Jesus was between Friday and Sunday because he had told the thief on the other cross uh, that he would see him in paradise that day, but the Apostles' Creed says Jesus descended into hell or Hades, depending on the translation. My simple answer to that was, I don't know, but we'll save that question for next year. Honestly, the real answer, I think, is that the wording of the creed is a little bit confusing. It's a problem of semantics and translation, not the scripture. But anyway, that's more of a Good Friday kind of question for next year. But Carol, who's staying with us, she asked a very good question as well. She wanted to know what Jesus came back for. As she observed, we tend to think that when people die, it's because they're finished. We're Calvinists here. We believe that. You don't die by accident. God knows what he's doing, right? And we use that language in church all the time, that, someone is called, that people are called home, right? And the Bible itself talks about finishing the race. 
And yet Jesus comes back as if to say that something wasn't done yet. That he still had something to do. Now, he did say on the cross, it is finished, right? But there might still be something to this point. I saw a, a quote floating around on Facebook this week from a pastor in New York who said, you know, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was just getting started. I think that's true. Jesus is still at work, right? He's still building his kingdom. And Georgia pointed out what a contrast this is to everybody else who ever died. You know, Scripture always says that when people die, they, they, they rest with their fathers as a formula that you read a lot in the Old Testament. And in the one instance where Samuel, Samuel gets brought back in ghostly form by the witch of Endor, he immediately complains that his rest was interrupted. Like, leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? And here you have Jesus. He only got a couple days rest, and yet here he is back in action. But the mystery that remains is not where Jesus is. That's been made obvious. The question I think that's worth asking is what he came back for. Why did he do it? Why resurrect and why come back at all? If the sacrifice is all settled. Now, never mind the fact that he had many times explained throughout his ministry exactly why he was going to do this, why he was going to die, why he was going to rise again. I, I wanted to just look at the evidence of that morning and what can his interaction here with Mary Magdalene tell us about why he's here and what he came back for? And we can begin to answer that mystery by seeing what Jesus does here. And a good detective will observe three things. And against my better judgment, I will summarize it this way. Jesus came back to live, laugh, and love. <laughs> Just like all those cheesy wall hangings. I know, I feel so hypocritical. All those years working at Bed Bath & Beyond and sneering at these things, you know, and here I am using this. I hate cliches, but it was too good to resist. Just bear with me. Well, he came back, first of all, to live. That should be an obvious one, right? Jesus had no intention of staying dead. Death was not something he looked forward to. It's not for nothing that he was sweating blood in Gethsemane. Death was something that he dreaded. Martin Luther says, no man feared death like this man. And death is something that he still hates. And he hates it because death is not the way things are supposed to be. People will sometimes say that death is part of life. Maybe you've heard people say that, but it's kind of a ridiculous statement on its face, isn't it? Death is not part of life. It's the antithesis of life. And contrary to everything we see, death is not natural. We were not designed to die. Death is a mockery of God's design. Death was not God's intention in the garden. Death is the last and least natural thing in the world. Death is offensive and it's disturbing to us precisely because we feel in our inmost being that this is not the way it was meant to be. And Jesus came back to demonstrate that death, that final enemy, had no authority over him. And that the grave can't hold the one who's holding it. So he stands there calmly pulling weeds in open defiance of a grave that stands right nearby because it has no power over him. He has no fear of it, no urge to run away from it. He can stand there at ease because that unnatural mockery of life has been defeated. But he also came back to laugh. 
Now, why do I say that? I say that because I can't help think, thinking that Jesus kind of enjoyed messing with everyone. I fully expect that the reason Mary mistook him for the gardener was because he was acting like one. John doesn't specify that, but the fact is that there are plenty of reasons to be in a public garden cemetery that don't include being the official gardener. Why would she expect him to be a gardener unless he was gardening? I think it's quite probable that he was pulling weeds with a trowel in his hand, pruning tree branches. I think she mistook him for a gardener because he intentionally wanted to look like one. I think Jesus likes traveling incognito. It's not like Mary doesn't know what he looks like, right? She's been following him for years. She was from Galilee. She's not far from Jesus' home, right? So the only way she could look at Jesus from just a few feet away without recognizing him is because he was concealing himself. You can almost imagine him faking an accent or something. Hey, lady, why all the waterworks? <laughs> Now, I believe that the resurrection had, in fact, changed Jesus. But even so, if Jesus had wanted Mary to recognize him, he could have simply opened her eyes and made it obvious from the get-go, couldn't he? Or he could have just walked up and said, Hey, Mary, it's me, Jesus. I know I look different. Like, there's a lot of ways to go about this, right? But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do it for the disciples on the Emmaus Road either in the, in the Luke passages. He keeps himself purposely concealed for hours talking to them. And he only reveals himself when he breaks the bread. And I think he did that at least in part to mess with them. I think he does this to see the look on their faces. It's the same reason children hide and try to surprise their parents. It's because it's fun. I think he does this with a smile, and I think he enjoys the element of surprise. I don't know about you, but I have found over the years that it is very true when it comes to gift-giving that giving is better than receiving because there's nothing quite like watching someone you love be pleasantly surprised. There is no theological reason why Jesus needed to disguise himself. There is no practical reason to hide himself other than to increase the drama. I picture him chuckling, walking away, asking the father, did you see their faces? I think he did it to make them smile, and I can't think of any other reason. So there is something mildly humorous about this scene. When he says Mary's name, he says it with tenderness, but I can't help but think that he said it through a smile. Peter and John walk him right past him. They already went home, so he chooses to mess with Mary. It's a completely normal human impulse, and it once again shows us that he is one of us. And finally, he came back for love. That should also be obvious in several ways. The fact that he reveals himself to Mary at all is proof that he wants to stop her tears and he wants to make her feel better. He's compassionate. When he's in disguise, he calls her woman, but he speaks her name now because he wants her to know, I know, I know you. He says it because it's tender and it's intimate and it's familiar. He clearly loves this woman and wants to console her. He wants to minister to her. One of his reasons for being there is to comfort her, even though he won't allow her to hug him. Grace, you should probably go ahead and put a bookmark on verse 17 and highlight the do not cling to me part. <laughs> Just like Jesus in this scene, Grace is not a hugger. Sometimes Grace shakes our hands when she goes to bed. 
It's okay. It's a really warm handshake. She means well. <laughs> but hugs are rare and awkward things in our house. Um, but hugs aren't the only way to show love, of course. What I wanted to point out is that Jesus isn't anti-hug, right? He, he doesn't say, no hugs. I don't do that thing. He says, don't cling yet. Like, not right now. I still have something to do. But most of all, you can see Jesus' love in the task that he gives Mary in verse 17. He says, go to my brothers and tell them where I'm going. And who does he say he's going to? He says, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Can you all begin to appreciate what Jesus is saying there? What joyous news is contained in that one verse? The fact that he still identifies with his people and still considers them his brothers and sisters. I keep thinking about this question this week. Why did Jesus come back? Not just why he resurrected, but why he came back to these specific people. Why does he bother sneaking around Jerusalem just to surprise his old friends? And I realize you can answer this question a lot of different ways, and, and you know, a good detective would try to fish out all of the possible motives for, for the whole thing, right? But why does he do it this way? Why didn't he get up out of the grave and just go straight to heaven? And I started to think of it this way. Maybe one of the ways to consider this is to consider the motive on the other side. Because there's another character in this story that we've been following, right? And we talked about him on Thursday night, but the enemy is involved here. Satan has been involved in this story from the get-go. He's the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He's the one who had corrupted Israel's worship and ruined the temple, right? He was the one who tempted Eve in the first place. Uh, he was the one who originally gave Judas the idea of betraying Jesus. He was largely responsible for this entire messy scene. He was the spark. And he was also the one who stirred up the Jewish leaders and even the crowds to reject Jesus. He has been a troublemaker throughout this entire process. But I don't think that Satan's stupid. He's a lot of things, but he's not a fool. I don't think Satan fully expected to actually legitimately destroy Jesus at Calvary in the sense that you can't erase the second person of the Trinity. You can't make God disappear. Satan has to realize that a few Roman soldiers can't permanently kill God. And he also knows that God could easily defend Jesus, and he could swoop in and rescue him from the suffering, and that's why he tempted Jesus to do things like jumping off the temple, right? Because he knows that Jesus has favored status. He's the golden child, the father's favorite. And when Jesus said that his father could send legions of angels, if he just said the word, Satan knows for a fact that that is true. He couldn't defeat Jesus in a fair fight. He knows that. So what was Satan actually trying to accomplish at Calvary? He obviously thought he accomplished something. I'm sure he thought it was a brilliant chess move. He has the king in check, right? But I also think there's something else happening. I think that his goal, one of his motives, at least in part, was to convince humanity to do something so horrible, so heinous, so treasonous, so unforgivable that God himself would refuse to forgive them anymore. 
so that Jesus would stop loving his people and that he would give up this ridiculous love affair with mankind and just let us all die. He wanted to convince mankind to do something that would put us out of reach of grace forever. His goal was to drive a wedge between God and man that would be unbridgeable. Because if Satan hates anything as much as he hates God, it's us. He wanted to make Jesus so disgusted that he would forsake us and kick us to the curb. And the thing is, he had succeeded in getting one of Jesus' best friends to stab him in the back. He had succeeded in making all of the other friends wuss out and go into hiding. He had convinced the religious leaders of God's nation to officially reject the God that they claimed to serve. He had turned the very crowds that were once Jesus groupies into a crowd that was demanding his death. If you were Jesus... Would you want to come back to these people? Or would you want to wash your hands of these fickle, worthless people? Satan's been making this case all along. These people of yours, they're not worth it, Jesus. They have nothing redeemable in them. They are rebellious, wicked, and weak, and easily led astray. I do it all day long. And I've been demonstrating this for you again and again for centuries. They will never get it right. Everything they touch gets ruined and they hate you. Haven't you seen enough? But beloved, on Easter morning, Jesus got up. And his first impulse was to go back to these same weak-kneed, pathetic followers and let them know that he was alive. And not only that, he was in a playful mood. And moreover, he still considers them his brothers and sisters. He went back to let them know that everything had worked out and that God is still their God. He came to live, laugh, and love, and by declaring us to be his brothers and sisters, he also implied that we're his fellow heirs, and meaning that the resurrection applies to us as well. It's a promise for us. Jesus knew what he was doing. He had outmaneuvered the enemy, he had taken the ultimate treasonous act and turned it into the ultimate act of sacrifice on our behalf. So the good news of Easter morning is that Jesus did not give up on us. He dreaded death, but he faced it head on for us. And from that very first interaction with Mary, he makes it obvious that death has been defeated, that mourning has turned into laughter, and that he still loves his unlovely people, and that he is still our brother. His first impulse out of the grave, even before he checks in with the father, is to go and comfort a lonely, weeping woman in a garden and put a smile back on her face. Calvary didn't divide us from God. It's what made our reconciliation and adoption possible, and that is something Satan did not see coming. So, beloved, I have no greater application I can make this morning than to rejoice. The tomb is empty, but there's no mystery. Jesus is alive, and he has not abandoned us. Of all the places he could be, second only to being with his father, he chooses to be with us, his disciples, the ones he calls brother and sister. And one day he wants all of us to be together. The answer to the mystery of why he came back is that he came back for us, so that we can live, laugh, and love like him, and be raised up with him in glory, so that we can do so with him forever. He'll even let us hug him. Now isn't that a savior worth praising? It's not mad at us, beloved. 
Nothing you've done is a deal breaker for him. If you trust in him, if you take refuge in him, he holds no grudges from Good Friday. The news is good for all of Jesus' friends. So rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we thank you for the stories that it contains. We thank you for sending your Son, Lord, and we thank you that as despicable, as despicably as he was treated, Lord, on our watch down here, Lord, he chose to come back. Lord, we thank you that he is not angry, and we take it from that that you are not angry with us in Christ either. We have peace with you. We thank you that the tomb is empty, and we thank you that it is no mystery. We thank you that he is by your right hand, Lord, interceding for us even now. We praise you and thank you, Lord. Make us thankful throughout the week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom.